this story comes as part of a collection of stories in chapter 25 of Matthew, uh, which all have a similar theme, and that theme is that uh, time will come to a close and there will be a reckoning. So you might remember we looked at the parable that had the ten virgins in it and they were waiting for the bride and the groom to come and time ran out and there was a lack of oil and all that kind of stuff. And there was the passage that Rad spoke on last week, which actually comes after this one, but the sheep and the goats, it was the end of time and uh, the judge comes to weigh everybody up. Um, and this is part of that same chapter. So it's the idea that when all is said and done, we need to make sense of all we have said and done. And this story portrays three slaves being entrusted with valuable things that they are to steward on behalf of their master while the master is away. And how are we to relate to this? Because I don't think any of us here, strictly speaking, are slaves. So how can we relate? Well, every person, of course, is entrusted with things that are not simply from ourselves, right? Our very DNA, which makes up our body, comes from our parents. The environments in which we are raised and formed in are the results of efforts by those who have gone before us, parents and others. The fallacy of the self-made is exposed as soon as we realise that culture is built over generations. Nobody makes themselves. Uh, Essential infrastructure is the result of past investment. Processes as diverse as manufacturing and education have been honed by our forebears. All of this, in one sense, is given to us. So much of what we have and who we are and who we, we, are, we are developing into has come from others. And who we are and what we have is not about us either. That is to say, we quickly lose ourselves in ourselves if we make it just about ourselves. The reality is we only discover who we are and what we have to offer as we offer who we are and what we have to others. The act of thinking it's all about ourselves is actually an act of fear. We see this demonstrated really clearly in the third slave character. His actions are all about fear. His motivation is entirely related to self-preservation. His only thought about anyone else is that they might be a threat to him. And as a consequence, he offers nothing. He produces nothing. Even what he has been entrusted with becomes utterly useless. He literally turns it into landfill and buries it in the ground. Now, during this COVID crisis, like many people, I've had to find new ways of doing my thing uh, my various roles. I'm a Christian minister, in case you hadn't noticed that part, and um, a chaplain. And a big part of my work is actually bringing people together, holding events together, meeting with people, sharing life together, all the things that we were told we must not do during this crisis. So I started to make these short video clips that I've been putting out on social media and so forth, little thought starters that might provoke a conversation no big deal. 
Except it seems I have a bit of a knack for it, and people have been really appreciating them, not just people from the congregation, but I do them for Wesley, and I share them around the Christian Students Uniting Network and so forth, and I'm getting some quite positive feedback. And I never would have discovered that if instead I'd thought, what if I sound stupid on video? And I do. And (laughs) what if I look silly or people make fun of me? If I'd made it about me, I would have buried that idea before I even tried it. So you can't just focus on yourself. It's got to be about doing something for others. And these slaves were given different amounts, right? That wasn't just everybody got the same in our strange way of what equality means these days. We would have thought that. But no, they're given according to their capacity. There's no room for jealousy here because each one is entrusted with an amount according to their capacity to manage that amount. I'm sure I told this story before about um, the difference between my two daughters' way and pay with regard to money. It's less so now, but certainly a year or so ago when we were actually handing out cash in those days, um, we would give money to our daughters for pocket money and Wei would squirrel hers away and save up for particular projects that she was interested in and Pei would leave hers on the bench. And it would be there two days later or it would roll underneath the kettle or she just didn't care about it. It was kind of lovely. And even now when she runs her dog washing business and people try to give her money, she says, no, no, I just like washing dogs. She doesn't care about the money. It's kind of lovely, really. But it would be stupid to give her more money then, wouldn't it? She doesn't know what to do with it. It's not like she's managing it at the moment. So each according to their capacity. It could be destructive to give someone more responsibility than they have a capacity to handle. And people have read this story in such a variety of ways. Some people hear in here a capitalist manifesto. Basically, work hard, achieve well, you'll be rewarded and get ahead in life, and if you disregard the requisite disciplines, you will be ruined. That's what the story's about, right? Well, there's some truth to that, obviously, but it's not entirely true. Um, Others read this story as a none-too-veiled threat that God will punish people who are lazy and wasteful. Although I have to note that whilst Jesus does tell this story to illustrate something about the kingdom, he doesn't say the wealthy man is God nor really does he affirm that the slave who is scared was assessing his master accurately. He just comments on the slave's assessment of the master. The master never says, well, you're right. He just says, well, if you thought that, why didn't you do this? So that's interesting too. I don't think God's as angry as all that. I think this is best read as a truism. It's most helpful to understand this story as something that we know to be true, that if you take a risk, if you make an investment with your time or your energy or your resources, that's the way that things develop and go forward. And if you're unwilling to take a risk, if you cling to whatever you have and hold it to yourself, that will not go so well for you. I think that there's abundant evidence of this, that it's true in in business, and it's true in every single relationship that you might have. 
I am just quietly a bit proud of having stayed married for over 28 years now. Now, some people might see this as a lack of adventure. (laughs) Personally, I have found it and continue to find it uh, the ever-deepening relationship with Joe, the greatest adventure I could possibly imagine. When you know someone, not only know them, but live with them for almost three decades, and I was telling this story to uh, some college students up at Wesley, and they get to stay living together for three years, and I think they think that's a long time. And I was saying, well, three decades. Uh, a lot of life changes in three decades. See, This might surprise some of you, but I'm no longer the strapping young man that uh, wooed Joe in our late 20s. And to be honest, she's no longer the gorgeous young woman who I fell in love with. She's still gorgeous, but she's not as young as she used to be. Our circumstances have changed significantly over three decades. We've been through couple life together We've been through trying to have babies together and not succeeding. We've been through the process of being investigated for international adoption and then going over and picking up first one child and then another child from Taiwan and raising these two amazing people as our life was kind of wrung out by lack of energy and lack of sleep. We've been through changes in our work life and our situations, changes of our social networks and friendship groups. If either of us decided to stop investing in our relationship, it would fall over pretty quickly. I'm fairly confident of that. And it's easy to think like the third servant thinks. The world can so easily seem like a hostile place. It's common to find people disabled by fear or stunted by an absorbing self-interest. But in the real world the world that we live in, every opportunity comes with risk. And within risk, there is all sorts of opportunity. Once you've left the safety of an educational institution and the parental protections that we love as children, this is how the real world works. We can observe this everywhere from politics and boardrooms through to relationships and raising children. There is no opportunity without a risk. And risk is always burgeoning with opportunity. So the issue then becomes where do we focus? Where do we decide to put our attention? When When we decide something is worth the risk, we discover the opportunity in it. Opportunity and risk are always present, so the variable is how we weigh each of those in any given situation. And this weighing process reveals what we have come to believe to be most important. The weighing process tells us where we weight things, what we've decided is the important part. And this is why I think faith is so important. Because in our secularist world, We could be forgiven for going with the flow and assuming that faith is now irrelevant. But the practical reality is faith shapes practically everything. We might be unaware of what we believe. It might be that we feel unable to articulate the tenets of our particular perspective. But our beliefs will nonetheless shape our priorities 
and our decisions. That's what fuels us and propels us. And at the risk of sounding old before my time, I have now lived long enough to observe people living their lives propelled by core beliefs they have never examined or understood. And these people often end up places they never imagined or wanted to be. Yet where they end up is actually the fruit of their deepest held beliefs. I talk with lots of people, and a lot of people who are my contemporaries, who I've known for a long time, are finding themselves in long-term relationships that are no longer working for them. And I bet you know people like that as well. None of these people entered their relationships expecting it not to work out for them. But I wonder how many made relationship a priority through those years. We go off in all manner of directions. We give ourselves to all kinds of situations. We meet new and exciting people along the way. We get distracted and self-absorbed. Our choices indicate the things we believe to be most important. We are propelled by motives and beliefs of which we have very little clear understanding a lot of the time. It's not surprising when we end up places we never wanted to. I think time spent clarifying what we believe to be most important is a really worthwhile life investment. So as we continue to make our way in the world, it's worth asking, what is it that moves us? What is it that motivates you? Are you propelled by fear, concerned first with your own self-interest? Or do you live from a hope-filled place that looks out beyond yourself? Do we realise all that we have been entrusted with, all that we have to offer? Are we ready to make our investments of time and energy, attention and resources to build the world of the future called in the direction of God's kingdom? Because as we do that work, we will earn both respect and the right to carry even greater amounts of responsibility. And we become those who determine the shape of things to come. And I put it to you that this is a path to the most profoundly fulfilling life, a life beyond what you can currently imagine. And that is worth the risk. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that you entrust so many good things to us. And they're not just for us, for our own self-indulgence. They are that we might make a life, a life not just for us and not just for our family, but make a life in the world for the world, for your kingdom to come. And we want to give ourselves to you in that purpose to the glory of your name. Amen.